Please take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 1. Doing a special sermon this morning in God's providence. I'm going to be in Exodus chapter 1. I pray the text will help us remember that as we live in a fallen and death-filled world, God has always ministered to his people and worked out his plan where great evil exists, where terrorism exists, and the horrors of abortion are pursued. Exodus, as many of you know, is just the continuation of what was told in Genesis. It's part of the five-part book of the Old Testament known as the Pentateuch. It was almost entirely written by Moses and was likely compiled for us in its final form by Ezra when the Old Testament was collected, as you read about there near the end of the story, and completed when Israel was reconstituted after the Babylonian exile. So when we speak of the Pentateuch, we think of Moses as the author. But he's the human author. We know that there, well, we have many books, 66 in fact, in the canon. There is one divine author, the Holy Spirit. I want to be clear that Moses would have wanted us to see the power and purposes of God, not Moses. These texts were written not so we would be called, be like Moses, or Moses is so awesome. If I was preaching that today and Moses was present, he'd be in the back going, no, that's that's not what's written here. He would have us to know the greatness of God. In fact, he does not hide his weaknesses and disobedience in the book of Exodus. So let's look at God's word this morning and see another time when God's people were hated, when injustice abounded, and see what God would have us to know and be encouraged in this morning. Exodus chapter 1. Hear now God's holy word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all the genera- that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built, they built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, 
the first whose name was Shiprah and the second whose name was Puah. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, You must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. This is God's word. The Israelites who first received these texts were not as closely connected to the events as these books were compiled. They needed to understand that God's people have always faced opposition. They had to be reminded that there are two kingdoms at odds with each other, God's kingdom and man's kingdom. They need to be reminded that God was faithful to deliver and save not only from earthly foes, but from so much more. They needed to remember that God is the real power and real authority. Here's the central point if you're taking notes this morning. The world is in conflict with the will of God. The world is in conflict with the will of God. That God's people, yet God's people, are to trust him. God's people are to trust him. Number one, first reason why, they know he is faithful. They know he is faithful. Consider what we know about the promise of a new humanity from Genesis and Exodus. God was faithful to his word. He was revealing his plan to have a special people, to save and redeem a people unto himself. Key verse there, verse 7, but the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. When we read of the Israelites here, we are reminded of God's faithful promises. We're not surprised that they multiplied and increased because we have the book of Genesis. The physical offspring of Abraham had indeed multiplied. So let's back up so we're not thrown into the story without some underpinnings. The call to be fruitful and multiply was given in the Garden of Eden. It was given to Noah. The Bible from the beginning puts forth the idea of the world being filled with the worshipers of God. Mankind fell. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Eve was deceived. Adam went knowingly, as we know from 1 Timothy. Adam was our representative. He plunged us all into sin. They trusted the lies of Satan over God's word. They sinned against God. When I say sin, I mean rebelled against God. God warned them of judgment, and so in judgment he issued the curse upon the world as a result. And that would have been fine. He could have just ended it there, judgment. But he didn't stop there. We know from Genesis 3.15 came the glimmer of hope. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. 
bruise his heel. So there are two types of people, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, those who are gods and those who are of the evil one. There's no neutral position. Isn't that exactly how our Lord taught? Isn't there are, isn't it true? There are two camps consistently discussed in 1 John. As those of you who've been there for Bible study, you're either of Cain or of Christ, either of the evil one or of, of the Lord Jesus, who is the true seed. In the Old Testament storyline, the evil one will continue to assault and wage war on God's people. He will seek to wound the special seed of God, the Messiah, but in the end, the evil one's going to be crushed. Messiah. So when we come to Exodus, the story is still moving forward. We begin to see again the assault upon God's people by the people of darkness. Egypt was the enemy of God, and God must deliver Israel so that they may worship him. And the story shows us a cosmic spiritual battle, not just a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. Come on, we know that's not what the text teaches. So from Noah to Abraham to Joseph to Moses, we see the pattern of a new humanity to be born in the midst of this, God, according to his mercy, would form a new people to be his very own. And the promise of a special people and a special seed continues as God displays his power and faithfulness to and by his word. Church, I, I bring all that up to say, don't we need to see the trustworthiness of God from his word? Don't we need to see his power and authority don't we need to remember his superintending over all things? You know, unless we read the pages of our Bibles through and through, we will not be built up in this. There's no substitute for reading God's word. Maybe today it's time to take that thing off the shelf at home and blow the dust off of it and open it every day. And spend time in God's word. Not maybe, that's what we should do. I mean, what, what do we read more? Facebook? Oh my. What do you open first in the morning? Fox, CNN, The Times, or God's word? It's tempting to go to those other devices and things uh, for all kinds of distractions. We like distraction. There's plenty of anxiety in this room to go around. The best way to deal with that is to be anxious about God. Good anxious, meaning concerned about Him. Concerned about His purposes and rule in my life. God, are you pleased with me? Am I serving you? Am I worshiping you? Am I obeying you? When we spend time in the word, we are helped at seeing God's purposes. I mean, which of all these sources that we're tempted to go to every day will give us more peace? Which of these resources will we re renew our minds? Not social media. Open God's word. Who will encourage you, as, encourage you to walk as these women here in Exodus who will encourage you to walk as Daniel did and as another examples in God's word we see it only in scripture get your eyes on the power and faithfulness of God church and you'll find strength 
and wisdom and grace to walk in obedience and love for your brothers and sisters. Pastor, are you saying I should go home and read my Bible? Yes. Just not want to mix words this morning. I hope some of you, when we begin next year, will start, we'll read the Bible through with me. I'd love to, if you're interested in that, talk to me. We'll, we'll make plans and read the Bible together. But consider here also what we know about the promise of a Savior. Where was God and all of his people suffering? Here is God's mysterious wisdom at work. He had told Abraham that his posterity would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs in Genesis, and that they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. We already, before Exodus happens, we know that God had already told Abraham this was coming. Everything's in his control. And yet the suffering of God's people would not be used to bring judgment Excuse me, and the suffering of God's people would be used to bring judgment upon Egypt and blessing upon Israel here. So even so, our sufferings today, beloved, work together for God's salvation purposes because they're part of his eternal plan. He didn't bring me into his, uh, a discussion meeting to know how to manage the world or our sufferings and trials. I just know he's working all things together. He is the judge of all the earth. God's goal then included more than simply getting his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people and bring glory to himself. Remember what Luke wrote about Stephen's speech in Acts 7 and recounting the Exodus? He said, in their hearts, the Israelites turned back to Egypt. And if you know the Pentateuch, you know that's a not a surprise, you know, that's a, a real struggle, a real problem that people had. And, and, and my, the overwhelming vast majority of the original generation never made it into the promised land on account of this. But even after leaving Egypt, Israel faced the temptation of turning their backs on God. And so when we get to Exodus 4, we read of this, the spiritual purpose, let my son go so that he may worship me. Pharaoh blocked this purpose, humanly speaking, by oppressing the Israelites. And despite Moses' repeated requests for Pharaoh to allow Israel to make a journey into the wilderness, to worship the Lord, he denied it, and Israel's suffering continued. God's desire extended beyond liberating them from political, economic, and social slavery. He desired worshipers. He wanted Israel, like Adam, to know and worship him. He wanted to use Israel to make worshipers of all nations. You know that? And God responded to all the dimensions of Israel's slavery. He certainly did. He didn't just set them free from social, socioeconomic, political oppression and let them worship any God. And neither did he just free them spiritually without changing their awful situation. No, we can know this about God's character. He saves to the uttermost. God continues to be concerned for physical freedom and physical righteousness, but also especially spiritual freedom. The Exodus stands as a unique event in the history of Israel. It also stands as a type, a picture, a pattern, a highly repeatable way God wishes to act in the world and that God will ultimately act for the whole creation when Jesus comes again. There will be a liberation from bondage. For the whole creation. And he's going to wipe away every tear. 
You know, some of us have never experienced, I, I would assume most here have never experienced the enslavement of these, uh, these types or forms that are, we, we see here in Exodus. But everyone understands the, the last form I was talking about, that spiritual form of slavery. Jesus said in John 8, we are slaves to sin. We are in bondage to sin. We rather do what we want than what God wants. We are guilty sinners. We have all loved, trusted, and obeyed ourselves and pleasures over God. And this inclination towards evil is something we have never been able to liberate ourselves or reform ourselves out of. It takes the grace of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word. We have all had the tendency toward rebellion and never towards obedience. No one ever drifts towards obedience towards, uh, towards the Lord and love of God. We are fallen this gathering, speaking to the members of this church especially, is an assembly of those who know good and well that they are sinners. We need help from the due penalty of our sin and the power of sin. And because God is pure and holy, he will not and he cannot tolerate sin. That's because God is good. Sometimes we use the word good in a, in a different way. I'm talking about the, the purity and goodness of God. If he's truly good, and he is, he will not and cannot tolerate sin. We have had other gods. We have told lies. We have all failed to love, and we have all lusted in our hearts. We have all hated others and withheld grace. We need spiritual deliverance. We need someone to save us not only from our sins, but the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death and judgment and hell. Our faithful God has promised to save his people from sin and death. And he illustrates redemption to us through the Old Testament as it leads us to the promised seed, the conquering, suffering servant, Jesus Christ. You know, did you look back at verse 1. Did you notice that these are the names? It reveals that God not only knows our names, but those who are his very own people. He has their name on the most important list. And, you know, I, I enjoy lists that people make sometimes. I am a lifelong football fan. Um, I wasn't surprised to see Patrick Mahomes be number, ranked number one amongst his peers in the NFL. Sorry if you're not a football fan. But that's not the list that matters most. Or whatever people's magazine lists may set up for who's the most attractive. Or who's who, or the Forbes list, or whatever it may be. The list that matters most is the one kept in what is called the Lamb's Book of Life. The Bible teaches that our creator, God, is holy. He's good and just, and only a righteous people will dwell with God. Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will enter, nor anyone who does, not, who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Are you one of God's people? Do you know the Lord as your Savior? The Bible says that our sins, our disobedience towards God separate us from him. We disregard him. 
Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities are separating you from God, your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Friends, do you understand yourself to be a sinner, a rebel against God? Because when you do, doesn't it give you a humble perspective on yourself and on others? The standard is God himself. God knows all about us. He knows what we think and what we do in private. He sees how we value other things and obey other things above him. This offends him. It offends God when we love, trust, and obey other things over him. He is God. He gave you and I life to worship him alone. Young people, that's why you were made. That's why you live. That's why you're existing today is so that you would give glory to God. That message is not just for the adults. It's for everyone here to know that fundamental truth. We were made to worship God. We've all sinned, Pastor Garrett. I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of the glory of God, as the word says. What are we to do? Pastor Garrett, I'm weighed down. I'm weighed down this morning. I've abused power. I've been selfish. I've uttered words of hatefulness. I've dishonored my parents. I've hurt others through either aggressive behavior or passive-aggressive behavior. You know, friends, I've made lists. I've made the list of sinners. As I read God's word, I'm, I'm confronted and convicted that I don't want to be on, anymore on the list of rebels. I want to be on God's side. That's what repentance is. It's taking God's side against our sin. God offers us forgiveness and acceptance through Christ alone. The true and greater son, the true and greater Adam, the true and greater Moses, the true prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ, God, the eternal son, put on complete humanity, lived in complete obedience and righteousness, and went to Calvary's cross to be our substitute, to take the place of any and all in judgment who would ever repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone, his merits, his life, death, and resurrection alone. I'm pleading with you, if you don't know Christ, come to Christ. Put your trust in Christ. Look to Jesus today and be saved. Who else could deliver us from the slavery of sin? Earthly regimes come and go. Our biggest threat is our sin and the judgment due. We need Christ. We need the Savior. The Lord is bringing, He has brought together his words so that we would see that we need a deliverer and his, he has provided that deliverer, not in Moses, but in Christ. And friends, God is multiplying the children of Abraham every day through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. God alone gives the increase and in blessing. We need to align ourselves completely with God and walk by the aid of his spirit. God delights and God is glorified 
when we do, particularly when we follow him in, in particularly difficult times. Bow before him, Christian, today in humility. Seek his face. Ask him to use you. Tell him you're tired of serving sin and want, a joy, want the joy restored that comes with following and walking in the grace of the Holy Spirit. The world is in conflict with God, yet God's people are to trust him. Let's go to point two. They know he's faithful, but number two, they know he is sovereign. They know he is sovereign. Verse 12, the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. God's fulfilling his promises by his power, his sovereignty. As we discern the issue of suffering in our own days, we have to remember that God is at work. Romans 8, 28, you know it well. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. God's election and purpose stand. They will not fail. God will bring his children home. You may not feel the good right now, but we have the promise of eternal life. God was going to allow suffering and appearance of defeat to display his power and glory. To remind his people of every generation that just because things appear to be hopeless doesn't mean victory is not near. Friends, God is at work even in our world where there's global terrorism, oppression and violence, deceit among the powerful and those who consider themselves elite. God's at work behind the scenes. And as you face uncertainty today, maybe you face uncertainty at work, uncertainty with a child, health, uncertainty with your health, or whatever it may be, preach this to yourself. God, I know you have a plan. Give me the grace to endure by your spirit and use me as a display of faithfulness. Have mercy on me through this and give me the strength to reflect you. Who are you going to call for help? Yourself in these difficult times? We don't have the resources to walk through trials and difficulties. The Spirit gives us that grace. When we examine the scene, we don't understand why the Egyptians want to inflict such suffering on the Israelites. But altogether, you know, it, it's just, look at, look at how Pharaoh, though, represents the situation. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. There's some greed there, some covetousness going on. Sinful self-comparison. I mean, we can't relate to Pharaoh's sin, can we? I'm speaking sarcastically. Verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Again, it's the powers of manipulation. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Paint the worst possible scenario you can. He, he looks on them with paranoia. And we know that it was known that the Israelites were awaiting a day when they could go to the land of promise, to the land of Abraham. The Israelites were pilgrims indeed, passing through. Friends, isn't that what we are? Did we not read that in 1 Peter this morning? For the Israelites, this was not wartime. It was a waiting period for them. And they in no way were a problem. Egypt and Pharaoh were threatened by the fact that these were God's people. They were threatened that they themselves were not the end all. You know, it's what idolatrous man hates that. 
that God is holy and that in him we move and have our life and being and that all glory is due to him. The world has always hated God and hated his people. And the twisted thing is instead of telling them to move on or we're going to declare war on you, they instead to seek to enslave them and make them servants. And mankind may think themselves religious, but when they are unyielding to God and to his glorious kingdom, they prove they are enmity with him. They are idolaters. In Egypt and other parts of the region, Pharaoh was God. And we encounter people in this world who think themselves God. But Pharaoh was not God to the Israelites, and no one else is to be God to us. The Bible says that again and again, because mankind is sinful and in rebellion against God, Romans 8, verse 7, the mindset of the flesh, that is the sinful impulse, is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice they were not being, the Israelites were not being obnoxious people. They were not being self-righteous and contentious people. They were not laying claim to Egypt. They wanted freedom of worship. At no point did Pharaoh accuse them of harming anyone in the kingdom. And no point does he see them kicking against him in war. Just a side comment, as I said earlier, good governments should protect the rights of their people and the defenseless. They should uphold the right of religious freedom and peaceful assembly and practice. The Israelites were there, and at one time they were valued by the Egyptians, but like all history, regimes and world views change. And then all of a sudden there are major shifts that take place. Some of you are sensing that in our own world right now. We've spoken against the Equality Act and the shifts of what it means to be a person. Things move quickly. We stay fixed on the Lord and we remain obedient to him. You know, one time God's ethics were valued perhaps there in Egypt, especially through the good influence of Joseph. He made a tremendous mark of, of good upon society, but now not so much. I mean, look at the situation, what's happening. Truth was made relative in Pharaoh's statement. The ethics of the day were those of what felt good to the flesh. Friends, the Bible continues to be very relevant, doesn't it? Their identity is not rooted in a creator there in Egypt, but is more tied to the people's appetites. God's people now would suffer. I've said it previously, I'll say it again. We all know that there's legislation in the works that seeks to silence anyone who speaks up against our culture's obsession with sexual immorality. They, don't, they only don't want you to be tolerant and, or quiet. They want you to embrace and confess it as true and good. But we cannot do those things. It's not loving to God, and it's not loving to our neighbor. If I were to steward our privileges well as citizens here in our country. The text reveals here again that they begin to plan to weaken the Israelites. They come up with this political plan. Verse 11, they assign taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. Verse 14, and made their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Not only did this not work, it backfires though. And Pharaoh takes it to the next level, enter the midwives, verse 15. 
We know what happens, hoping to quell the population through killing the boys. It backfires and the Hebrew children multiply more. I love it when the midwives come before him there in verse 18. Such an evil sentence. Why have you let the boys live? What a sick comment there by the Pharaoh. And I love their answer. I believe they answer truthfully. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Well, who's the midwife? I believe they took their precious time. They are good examples of honoring God first. What women these must have been. And what examples they are to us. Are you not encouraged today by their fear of God and reverence for the Lord? I mean, we're not being called to give an answer, anybody in this room that I know of, to stand before a king and give a report. They were fearful of the king of the universe. Why? Because he's glorious and all-powerful and holy and our creator. Don't we need to be faithful and bold ones in our midst today for Jesus? Pray that our church is filled with people who love and fear the Lord Jesus Christ. That will make us a people of integrity. But God in his sovereignty is allowing suffering here. We know from reading the book of Job, we know from reading other portions of scripture, that God is at work bringing glory to himself through his people, through difficulties. We saw it right at the end of Genesis. Joseph says it, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. We see it all the more and most perfect in our Savior, the sinless one. It is indeed miraculous and amazing that he is uh, truly God and truly man, but our sinless Savior went as our substitute. The greatest sin ever committed was the crucifixion of Jesus. Sinful men laid hands on him, falsely accused him, and nailed him to a cross. And yet God used it for his glory and our good. But one thing you can know is that throughout the Bible, God is compassionate towards our sufferings, so much so that he gave himself to endure the worst suffering, and that was paying for our sins. Our sins. He had none. We had the debt, and he paid it all. And the other thing to know is that God drives home the point is he is to be our all in all, that we need him to save and deliver us, and that God in this book is going to reveal that he alone is Lord and Savior. And all along the way, even though he's not mentioned here, Uh, God is at work. Beloved, you may not see him at work yet, but you can be sure that he is at work in your life. He has brought you to this assembly today to hear his word, to hear the gospel preached, to be encouraged by brothers and sisters. Do we fear him? Do we revere him? Do we trust his sovereignty? Enough to obey, even though the world rages against us, to be faithful. Last point, the world's in conflict with the will of God, yet God's people are to trust him. Number three, they know he is kind to those who trust in him. 
They know he is kind to those who trust in him. Verse 20, God was so good, excuse me, God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Why is God to be revered? Because of his power and glory. He's the real king. Pharaoh is limited. At least, Pharaoh is limited in the sense that he's, uh, he does not have all power and authority. The midwives revered the Lord. They may not have had all the scriptural knowledge, but they knew enough that it was better to mess with Pharaoh than to mess with God. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And what a great phrase in the passage. God was kind. God blessed You want God's blessing? Turn to Christ. In Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, the Bible tells us. We will salvation from his wrath, clothed in his righteousness, we must turn to Christ. Trusting in him means being faithful to stay fixed on him. Trusting in Christ means being faithful to keep holding to the faith, holding to Christ. So if we're going to make decisions based on worship like the midwives, we'd better get our eyes on the greatness of God. Friends, what are you being tempted with today that is stealing the glory of God from your heart? We marvel at these Hebrew midwives. But something had to be going on in here. There was, there was the concern for the glory of God inwardly. Are our hearts so captivated with the glory of God? Isn't that the key to walking in obedience? Is that we are filled with a focus on glorifying our maker. Is your heart filled with politics, with money, leisure, is that more glorious to you? Is it romance? Or is it God? You know, the midwives who, by the way, are the only ones named right here, the ones we may not have suspected, they are the ones who say, God is more valuable. God has the power to bless me truly. Who has the power to bless? God. In a world full of suffering, what is God revealing to you that you are looking to more and to him to satisfy and comfort you. And the list could go on. And that's why we want to turn back to God. He's calling us to return from those things. Put our focus on him and revere him more. Knowing that he blesses those who hold fast to him. By his grace. Christian friends, can the world tell that you don't really care about what the culture thinks. But you care about first and foremost what Jesus thinks. Does your life look like everyone else or do you live like the patriarchs, like faithful believers from before, like these Hebrew midwives? Are you trusting in our faithful, providential, and gracious, kind God? 
And if so, does your life reflect this by your adoration and love of Christ alone? I pray that we will do that. Let's pray. Father, captivate our wandering hearts with yourself. Calls us to spend more time in prayer and in your word by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Help us to turn from the lethargic ways we walk as your people and be filled with power from above. Calls us to walk in righteousness and remember, Lord, you are faithful and sovereign and kind. In every age, Lord, and every day that you give us to live. To the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.